So, Christine, I think, spoke about the breath a little bit on the first morning, and then uh, yesterday, Yan I spoke about the body, the first foundation of mindfulness. So, I'd like to just uh, give a final piece of instruction about uh, the first foundation of mindfulness in terms of working with with bodily pain and difficult sensations in the body. And of course, uh, as we all know, this is, this is almost inevitable uh, part of practice to come up at, at some point. So sometimes if we're uh, sitting and we're with the breath or if you're doing metta practice or, or whatever, uh, pain is arising. Sometimes, sometimes it's possible that the uh, level of steadiness with the breath can just, in a way, keep the pain at bay. So it's almost like the birds outside, or just something on the edge of consciousness. And sometimes that happens, and if it's possible to just stay with the breath, stay with the metta, whatever it is, and the uh, physical pain doesn't seem to intrude that much, then that's fine, that's completely fine, and just to keep working that way. Sometimes, of course, that's just not possible and the, the pain uh, really does intrude in, into consciousness and demands attention. So the first thing to say is that meditation should not be an endurance test. Okay? We're, not, you know, uh, we're not here to uh, develop our machismo and, uh, or, and we're not going to give out any medals or, or anything for, for how long we can sit. So that's quite important. It was quite a, a change in my practice when I heard that. It's just, it's not an endurance test. It's not what this is about. So if you're sitting and it's re- there's really a lot of pain, like sitting after sitting, it's just becoming tiring. It's taking up all the energy and all the attention. Uh, please think about just alternating postures. So if you're sitting on the floor, sit, you know, one sitting on the floor and then a sitting in a chair and then on the floor and on the chair can be really, really skillful, really, really helpful. And maybe just the question, am I attached to a certain uh, image of what it needs to look like when I meditate, what my legs need to look like? Uh, it's, it's, it's actually quite common. Sometimes though, and, and very much part of the practice, is to explore, to, to find the willingness inside to explore the difficult aspects of having a body. So to be human, to be uh, embodied, uh, means that at times in our life, w- without question, for all, all human beings, there will be pain that won't be in our control. And it's part of our life. So to find in our practice, I said, the willingness to turn towards that and to explore it to bring an openness to it and a curiosity even to it. To explore one's edge as well. Where, where, is, where is my edge in relation to pain? Where are my edges? So, if one's exploring pain, to, to know also that when it gets too much, to change the posture. Uh, just, it's too much now. I'm not really learning anything anymore. I'm just kind of gritting my teeth and bearing it. Uh, just then <coughs> change the posture. can be done slowly um, with mindfulness and noticing also the relief that comes. So there's, there's a lot of suffering and then we move the posture and there's relief. And to, be, to actually just keep the awareness open uh, through that whole process and feel the relief. So when we're actually working meditatively uh, with with difficult sensations in the body, um, first sort of port of call would be to see if you can notice, uh, be aware of, is there there any tension uh, in the rest of the body? Is there a kind of recoiling from the fears? This is very, very normal, completely understandable. Uh, Pain arises somewhere in the knee, in the back, wherever it is. And we, the rest of the body kind of crunches up in relation to it. There's a recoiling, uh, moving away from, even a fear. 
So first protocol, is it possible to just step back a little, see the bigger picture, and relax uh, any tension, any recoiling in the rest of the body? So maybe check in with your shoulders, with the belly, and just see, ah, tensing there, can I just relax? Can that, or just a little bit, can it just be relaxed? Then perhaps to, um, to also stay with a slightly bigger picture at first, and just see, this pain can seem all-consuming, can seem just the body is on fire with pain. Uh, but just to check, how, how is the tip of the nose, for instance? Is that, is that in pain? Or my earlobes, are they in pain? Or my fingers, often, you know, usually fingers are okay. Just to get a sense of, well, in a way, a sense of perspective, that this uh, pain is actually not uh, the totality of the experience. To explore, perhaps, to the edges, the edges of the pain, of the difficult sensation. So, uh, where is, the, you know, say it's in the knee, where exactly is it? Does it stop, you know, halfway up the thigh, or does it extend the whole length? Where exactly are the edges of the pain? Are those edges sharp edges, or do they kind of fade out slowly? So to bring this curiosity, this um, sensitivity of attention to the whole, the whole actual experience of pain. So checking out the edges. Then one may want to, uh, in a way, get underneath the label pain. Pain is a word, it's a label, it's what we put on the experience. Can we, uh, one way of working would be to make the attention quite microscopic almost. So it's almost like looking at what we're calling pain under, under the microscope of very fine attention. Really investigating that in the same, with the same kind of care that we would bring to the breath. Really sensitive to what's there, the bare experience. The pain is just a label. Let me see actually what it feels like. Usually with pain, we want to go the other way. Can I just turn around and actually pen- begin to penetrate it with the, inte- with the attention? So when we get underneath the label pain, what do we, be- what do we actually begin to notice? Maybe there's heat, maybe cold, maybe uh, a sense of pressure, maybe a kind of throbbing, maybe a steadiness to it, or flickering, pulsing. This can be really helpful, uh, because the label pain is often already quite charged. We don't actually take the time to get underneath and, and find out what actually is the experience. So this more microscopic attention is one, one way of working. The other way, sort of the other pole, would be, um, uh, in a way, a very spacious awareness. So rather than looking at the pain under a microscope, opening up the awareness in, in as large and expansive a way as possible. I think tomorrow morning Catherine is going to talk about sound, <clears throat> because sound comes from all over. It can be quite helpful in opening up the awareness in a spacious way. When there's a sense of space and awareness, then this pain that's happening somewhere in the body is actually just one thing occupying a small part of the space of awareness. And this somehow uh, makes it easier to handle. It, it, it has a context for it. So the sensations of pain, they arise and they disappear uh, in, the, in this space of awareness. So, microscopic and spacious, two very skillful ways of working. And to, uh, as we develop in meditation, to feel quite free moving between these two. So, pain, as I said, is part of having a human body. And if we're in our lives, if we're too caught up, in the movement away from pain and hanging on to pleasure, we'll tend to miss uh, 
something of the profound mystery of what it is to just have a body, to be embodied, that this body is part of nature. And the very recoiling from pain, the very uh, unwillingness to look at it, which is completely understandable, but that unwillingness also closes uh, the doors of, of the heart and of the, of the deeper eyes of the being. So this sense of mystery, the mystery of nature, the mystery of body becomes a little bit close to us. And sometimes people, you know, when there's quite an openness in practice, there's a sense of that mystery running right through, right through pain as well. So we're sitting watching pain in the body and it's still imbued with this sense of mystery because there's an openness and there's a willingness there. Okay, uh, end of part one. Um, what I really wanted to talk about <laughs> uh, was uh, the second foundation of mindfulness. So this uh, is... Body is the first foundation. Second foundation, second area where the, bod- where the Buddha really encouraged uh, human beings to pay a lot of interest was this... this uh, Ved, what's called Vedana. These four foundations, uh, what the Buddha is saying, yeah, pay attention to everything, but these four in particular, because this is where our suffering lies, this is where we tend to get entangled, and this is where we can realize a really deep freedom. So, certainly around the body. And then the secondary Vedana. And Vedana is a Pali word, V E D A N A. And there's a little problem in translation here because it usually gets translated as feeling, feeling, which in English uh, we, we think of as emotion. But uh, that's not actually what Vedana means. We'll, we'll be talking about emotion in the next few days and later on in the retreat. So it really means something like feeling tone, which is basically something very simple. Just whether whether some experience is felt as pleasant or as unpleasant or as somewhere in between pleasant and unpleasant maybe called neutral or neither pleasant nor unpleasant so it's, it's just that very simple is, is something pleasant felt as pleasant, unpleasant or in between all moments all moments of our life every experience at every sense door has a feeling tone with it every moment. So we may be sitting with the breath, and sometimes the breath feels, um, you know, very stuck or tight or constricted, blocked or uh, unpleasant in some way. There's, there's, uh, it just doesn't feel like it flows well. So at that at that moment, the the vedna associated with the breath is unpleasant. Sometimes can happen. The breath feels very lovely. There's a real fullness or flow or, or subtlety or uh, warmth even to it. And a lot of the times the breath just feels kind of in between, neither pleasant nor unpleasant. But it goes, as I said, through every sense door. So, so with taste, you know, uh, you, you taste something, uh, it's pleasant or it's unpleasant, or a lot of the times, actually, if you pay careful attention to taste, a lot of times there's actually not much taste happening. It's quite, uh, uh, quite interesting with food, uh, with the eating experience. Uh, with the body, as we've just been talking about, that we have pleasant sensations in the body and, and difficult sensations, unpleasant. With sound, too. So uh, sometimes beautiful songbird sings outside and it's a very pleasant sound. Uh, sometimes we have the rooks going crazy and some people love it and for some people it's really an unpleasant sound. And if I, if I had... Uh, long nails and there was a blackboard here and I <laughs> some people shuddering it's, for most people it's not it's the, the Vedna associated with that sound is very unpleasant thoughts every thought every thought that passes through the mind actually has a Vedna it's either pleasant or unpleasant or, or neutral mind states walking when we're walking in meditation just the touch of the foot on the carpet uh, sometimes can feel soft and warm and very pleasant or just subtly pleasant. Sometimes, you know, it's cold or 
pressure or something, it feels unpleasant. So everything, everything, everything has, has this Vedna attached to it. Now, most people, I think, when they hear this, uh, the general reaction is, uh, yeah, so, so what? <laughs> Which is understandable. I was talking with, with a good friend a little, maybe a couple of weeks ago about this, and she said, actually, when she first heard this many years ago, it was, uh, she loved the sound of it, because suddenly all the complexity of her suffering and, and the uh, complexity of the emotional life was suddenly, it was like a light shone in it, and it was, it was made to seem so simple. Oh, it's just this, it's just pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. Everything that seems so entangled and complex was seen to be simple. So there was a real sort of uh, gratitude and love for this teaching. When I first heard it uh, many years ago, I was outraged. Um, I thought, this is completely cold and reductionistic and oversimplistic and cutting off areas of the being and those Buddhists. And, <laughs> and I stopped practicing for four years. <laughs> That wasn't the only reason for it. Uh, and then when I calmed down a bit, um, four years later, <laughs> I, I and came back to practice, I actually realized that actually this is a very beautiful teaching. There's, there's an enormous amount here. Something really, really is the gateway to freedom. Somehow in its simplicity uh, can lead us uh, to really a sense of loveliness, beauty, openness, warmth. Uh, and freedom. Often it's not, we don't even, you know, you might have been on, uh, uh, you know, 20 uh, week-long meditation retreats, and, and we, we go through these four foundations of mindfulness, and often, it, you know, people, there's so much information, it just kind of goes in one ear and out the other, and this particular area of Vedana is often exactly one of those that we just forget about. Recently I was teaching this retreat uh, somewhere else, and there was a woman who had spent three years, um, it was quite amazing, three years, all she did was mindfulness of the body. That was her whole practice for three years, every day for three years. And I thought, great. <laughs> and this, re- this week retreat was the first time when I gave the instructions on Vedana that she'd actually heard the Vedana instructions. And uh, she said, like, wow. <laughs> and then she said, for the next three years, I'm going to And I thought, brilliant. And it was actually the first time that anyone had ever uh, really shown much interest (laughs) in Vedana. So it's an odd thing. So a little bit what I want to go into today is um, just highlight some of the actual possibilities here so so that we have these options for our practice. So the the first thing, if if, if, uh, we want to practice with Vedana, is that what we're really practicing is a sensitivity to it. So it's interesting, I took a a class many years ago when I lived in America, and we spent quite some time on Vedana. And it was a class for experienced meditators. And some people in the class understood right away what was being spoken about. Other people, and it's just a personal thing, whatever, uh, it took them many weeks to understand even what was being talked about. So this is just a personal variation, there's no judgment involved, it's just some people get it and others it takes a little longer. But for everyone, I think what what we need to do, the first thing that needs to happen is that we practice a sensitivity to Vedana. So some Vedana is is very obvious, you know, uh, someone punches us on the nose or whatever and it's, it's obviously unpleasant. But a lot of Vedana is very subtle. So, for instance, when we're walking and the foot just touches the ground, is that pleasant or unpleasant? Like my hand right now. It's actually subtly pleasant just there on the carpet. So, a lot of what the first thing that can we practice is, is to develop a sensitivity. Develop a sensitivity to this area. Because uh, it gets subtler and subtler and subtler. And a lot of what this insight meditation practice is about is developing sensitivity. It's, it's a huge part of this practice. So, a wonderful thing to do is just to develop one's sensitivity to Vedana. So just to notice, what's the Vedana right now? Or with a certain experience, the breath, or the 
hearing or whatever it is. What's the Vedana right now? What's the Vedana? And slowly a sensitivity uh, deepens to this. Some of you might be here with the with the sort of intention to um, to develop some samatha this retreat, some calmness, some collectedness of the mind through the breath or whatever. I'll be speaking about this, I think maybe the next talk, but this Vedana is actually quite important in in, in calming the mind. Uh, it becomes quite significant. When there's a pleasant Vedana, if that's one's intention to calm the mind through samatha, you really want to include that pleasantness in the meditation. You really want to open to the pleasantness the breath feels pleasant, the body feels pleasant, whatever it is. Really want to include it, be very aware of it, and at some point even focus on it to develop that pleasantness. So the Vedana is, is quite significant if you're, if you're working in any way on samatha meditation in this retreat. Also, if you're working on metta or compassion, uh, the, this uh, Vedana is also quite significant. Sometimes, not can never be always, but sometimes... Metta and compassion feel quite pleasant. There's a pleasant Vedana associated with them. And again, you really want to open to that. Open the being to that pleasantness. Letting oneself enjoy it. In a way, mixing it with the metta. Mixing it with the compassion. So that part of what we're radiating out in the metta is that pleasantness. It becomes part of the love. I'm actually not sure what the proportion of who's doing what practice is, but so I'll just put that out there. Uh, perhaps m- most people are doing insight practice, I'm not sure. But for insight, how do we approach this from an insight perspective? First thing, uh, in the uh, Buddha's talk about the foundations of mindfulness, he says something very odd. He keeps repeating this very odd phrase. And he says... Um, see the body in the body and then when he comes to Vedana he says see the Vedana in the Vedana see the feeling tone in the feeling tone and at first you think what's he talking about see the feeling tone in the, what does that mean there's probably different interpretations I think a big part of what, what's meant there is what happens is we're meditating and there's say unpleasant feeling and instead of seeing the feeling in the feeling, it's just unpleasant feeling. That's what it is. I need to pay attention to the fact of unpleasant feeling. What, do, what happens? Self gets involved and starts wrapping itself around and defining itself in relationship to this feeling. Unpleasant feeling, it's because I'm a crappy meditator. I'm useless. I should probably not even you know, waste everybody's time and just go, whatever. The self just gets involved. Don't see self in Vedana. That's what the Buddha is saying. Don't see self. Don't see self-esteem or self-judgment or any of that stuff. Can I just see Vedana in the Vedana? So just that much is, is a huge, uh, a huge uh, chunk of freedom. So the first thing, to practice sensitivity. It's just the Vedana, and can we develop this sensitivity to it? Second thing, uh, once one has developed a sensitivity, to begin to notice the typical reactions we have to Vedana. So typically, very uh, human thing, very actually, uh, not even human, just part of anything with consciousness. When there's pleasantness, we want to move towards it, we want to hold on to it, we want to grab it, we want to uh, grasp it, we want to, want to keep it. Okay. Pleasantness, and we pull it towards ourselves. Unpleasantness, we want to get rid of it, we push it away. Neutral, uh, we tend to just not be interested. It's just pretty boring. Uh, we just either get frustrated or look elsewhere, or kind of go to sleep. How much of our life is actually neutral? A tremendous amount of uh, of the actual moments of our life, the experience of our life, actually quite neither particularly pleasant nor particularly unpleasant. 
huge chunk and how much of that are we actually present for or are we kind of spacing out and losing interest because of the neutrality because it doesn't uh, have that much interest for us because it's not particularly pleasant not particularly unpleasant so to notice these reactions pushing away the unpleasant pulling towards or holding the pleasant and and kind of spacing out or getting bored with the neutral so a really important thing to understand is that we're not trying to get rid of Vedana. It's actually impossible in our life to get rid of Vedana. Uh, there's no such thing as really life without Vedana. So we might think, oh, I want to move towards only having pleasant or at least getting rid of the unpleasant. Actually, it's not possible. So the, the nature of life, the nature of consciousness itself, uh, the actual nature of consciousness is to be wrapped up with Vedana. So what's needed is, instead of a getting rid of, is an understanding, insight. What we're looking for is insight in relationship to Vedana. So once there has, if, if you feel like uh, you already have some handle on this and you've, you have some sensitivity to, to the Vedana aspect of experience, next step is, okay, what's the insight here? What's to learn? And the Buddha recommends... Uh, looking in terms of what's called the three characteristics of experience. The three characteristics of experience. So, first one is really focusing on the fact of impermanence. So if we are uh, noticing Vedana, we just keep the attention on the Vedana uh, of an experience, tuning the mind in a very deliberate way to all that's important to notice right then is the impermanence. All I'm interested in seeing is the arising and the passing, the coming and going. I'm not interested in anything else. I'm just focusing, focusing, focusing repeatedly on the change, the changing nature of experience. In one place, say it's uh, somewhere in the body or thought or whatever. Just, just the impermanence, that's all I'm interested in. That's the first characteristic. Second characteristic uh, not self. It's not one sees this Vedana is just coming and going, coming and going. I have very little control over it. I can actually see if I hold my attention with it long enough, it's just coming and going by itself. It's not me. It cannot be me because it's just coming and going by itself. It cannot be mine even. I have no control over it. It's just happening. It's not me, not mine, not self. And in this second characteristic, to look at the experience through that lens of not self. So to look at it and just just see, just keep uh, reflecting, this is not me, this is not mine, just see, it's just happening. It's just happening. It's an extremely uh, powerful way of practicing. And it might not sound that way when you, when you just hear it, but very powerful, very beautiful way of practicing. To look at the Vedana and just regard it as not-self. Not me, not mine. So impermanence, not-self. Third one, the unsatisfactoriness of it. Meaning, if it's impermanent, how can, even if I have a pleasant Vedana, how can I, how can I look to it for a sense of fulfillment, a lasting satisfaction? It's just coming and going. And if one hones the attention quite carefully, it's coming and going 20, you know, 100 times quicker than that. It's just coming and going, coming and going. There's no point. There's really no point. It's completely futile to try and hang on. Now, rather than giving a sense of futility, actually that, that uh, brings a sense of freedom, of liberation. There's a space... Oh, what a relief. I don't even have to try and arrange all this stuff. I don't have to hold on. Second way of working with the third characteristic, with this dukkha, is a little bit more uh, subtle, just a little bit more subtle. There is the Vedana, pleasant or unpleasant. 
let's let's take the example that it's unpleasant. There's the Vedana. And then there's the reaction to it. There's the reaction to it. Uh, if it's unpleasant, that reaction will be pushing it away. Rejection, aversion. Beginning to see, this is in a way the next step of, of working, beginning to see if you can notice, can, can awareness separate out the Vedana from the reaction? So there's the, the unpleasantness, and then there's my reaction to it. And can I see that they're two separate things? This reaction, if it's pushing away, if, if one's quite sensitive, in, one will notice it in the rest of the body. The, the sense of the body uh, will contract somewhat. There'll be a sense of contraction there, of tightness in the body. Uh, this is telling us that there's, there's some kind of aversion going on. If I can separate it, if I notice that much, then is it possible that the reaction can be relaxed? Can I relax the reaction and just see, can I, can I just not push it? Can I just not push it away? Can I relax the aversion or the pulling? Sometimes we actually relax the body where we sense the pulling and the aversion relaxes. Sometimes we uh, find a way inwardly of just relaxing the aversion. Just relaxing the aversion. This turns out to be really significant. What we begin to see and, and really feel, and it becomes extremely obvious, not at all abstract, we really begin to feel suffering goes. Uh, there is no suffering if the relationship is okay. If the relationship is one of non-aversion, non-grasping, the suffering has gone from the experience. There can be unpleasant Vedana, or, or pleasant Vedana, or whatever it is, but the suffering has gone because the relationship is okay. And sometimes we sort of know this intellectually, but working in this way, in a very physical way, with the body, it's like we begin to embody that wisdom. We begin to feel it and know it for ourselves, in ourselves. The Vedana, the feeling, is not the problem. It's not at all a problem. Unpleasant feeling, not a problem. Neutral feeling, not a problem. Pleasant feeling, not a problem. The problem is in the aversion or the grasping. So that just that much is hugely significant to really, really uh, take in that uh, that insight. Hugely significant. Might seem simple or kind of so what, but. It's, is very deep insight into where does suffering come from and how can we be free from suffering. So I'd also just like to say, when, when working with the Vedana, you can, again, work in a very microscopic way or you can work in a spacious way. And there's something to be learned with both. So feeling free to experiment. So I know there's an, a lot of information, but just uh, in a way to, to take it to the next level, and if it feels like this is not relevant to me, it just it can go in one ear and out the other. Uh, but some some people have been practicing with Vedana, so just to take it to the next level. If if there is a sensitivity and one has practiced, you know, noticing the impermanence, etc., what then? In, in the foundations, of, in the uh, Satipatthana Sutta, the, the, the talk on the foundations of mindfulness, the Buddha uses this word, samudaya, it's a Pali word, samudaya. And it's interesting, this gets translated in different ways. Um, what it really means is the origin, sounds complex in English, the origination and dissolution factors of something, <laughs> which means what it is that feeds something and what it is that kind of allows something to fade. So every time kind of he goes through with each with the body, the feeling, the emotion, and then he has this little chorus kind of thing. And every time he sees, notice what it is that feeds this and notice what it is that allows it to fade. Notice the samudaya. Okay. 
Sometimes this is translated as just notice it coming and going, but actually I think the translation is a bit different. So we ask with Vedana, what is it that's actually feeding, feeding the sense of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral? And what is it that calms it? Again, some of the, this actually turns out to be like one of the uh, questions that was most central that the Buddha kept asking himself in the in the uh, his period of practice before his enlightenment. What is it that feeds? What is it that feeds? And what is it that fades and calms? So it again, it turns out to be hugely significant. Uh, what feeds Vedna? One thing we can see is mood feeds it, my mind state. You know, this, this can, is quite obvious to see. If I'm irritable, if I'm in a bad mood, I'm basically looking at the world through the lens of that mood, and everything becomes irritable. The bird sound, the, your neighbor sneezing, coughing, everything. You know, the body doesn't feel right. Everything sucks. Mood feeds it. And similarly, when the mood is open and spacious, how, how imbued the world is with lovely Vedana. So mood feeds it. To notice these relationships. What about this question of microscopic spacious? Is that a neutral factor? Or does the spaciousness of awareness actually influence the Vedana? To explore this, to explore this. When we work with what I was talking about before, relaxing the aversion or the craving, relaxing the push and pull, push away what's unpleasant, we pull towards us what's pleasant. When we relax that, relax the push and pull, we notice something else really significant. It's not just that the suffering goes out of experience because we've relaxed the push and pull. Something else, something else happens. Relax the push and pull, and actually, the Vedana itself begins to calm, begins to fade a little bit. And so, if one practices in that way, just noticing the Vedana of experience, and just keep letting go of any push and pull that one notices, just keep letting go, just keep letting go, uh, what can happen is this calming of the Vedana, opening of the being, as a real sense of beauty and loveliness. So again, sometimes I think uh, when we talk about Vedana, it just re- and like my initial reaction just sounds so dry. And I just, you know, if there's one thing I want to say, there's, there's really a lot of beauty here. Really a sense of, a whole different se- sense of, of life. A whole different sense of being alive and of experience. And just letting go and letting go and letting go. And there's an opening and a calming of the Vedana. Also, when I uh, reflect on the Vedna as not me, not mine, they're just happening, what effect does that have on the Vedna? Again, it usually uh, brings a calming, a loveliness, a quieting of the Vedna. So this, again, what's the significance of that? What's the insight here? First of all, it means that the feeling tone is not inherent in the object. So oftentimes we get, you know, uh, this, this thing, in this, this food, or this uh, person, or whatever it is, it, they're just, they're just, they are just unpleasant. You know? uh, what we begin to see, if we work this way, is that the feeling tone is not actually inherent in that person. They are not inherently unpleasant. Uh, or uh, uh, some other uh, event at the sense door is not the feeling does not inherently belong in the object. It arises dependently. It needs a lot of conditions to come together for that particular vedana. So begin to start getting an insight into dependent arising. Nothing exists on its own. It's it's always a dependent arising, always. So by itself, an object cannot give rise to a particular Vedana. If 
we go e- even even more with this. We take it a step further. There's something very very uh, very very odd in a way here. So if you practice in this way, in this very lovely way to practice, just keep letting go. Just keep relaxing the aversion, relaxing the grasping. Just noticing when becoming sensitive to the aversion, the grasping. Just keep relaxing that. What we begin to notice, the Vedna, as I said, begins to calm because, why? Because there's a relationship between relaxing the push and pull and the Vedna. So the Vedana, the feeling, is actually dependent on the push and the pull. But the push and the pull is dependent on what? It has to be dependent on the Vedana. Because without the Vedana, there's nothing to push and pull. It's unpleasant. I, I'm pushing that away. I need The push and pull needs the unpleasantness to push against. Does this make sense? <laughs> the feeling is... Push and pull needs feeling. Feeling needs push and pull. They're, they're mutually dependent. Mutually dependent. Which comes first? Which comes first? What's going on here? This is dependent on this, and this is dependent on this. Something very odd is going on. This is the beginnings of of very deep insight into the groundlessness of all things. This is one of the aspects of the word emptiness is groundlessness. Groundlessness. We tend uh, to think that things have a base, a ground. And, and the, the teaching of dependent origination at, at, on a very deep level is pointing towards all things, inner, outer, whatever, are groundless. They, they, nothing, uh, there's not, no one thing that rests on, on anything by itself. Everything is somehow resting on each other. The mind cannot really even begin to get around it cannot begin to get around the nature of things, the true nature of things. Nothing is really standing on anything. Nothing is really existing by itself. One, can be- one also begins to see the Vedana and the push-pull. What earlier in my practice, I spent maybe months uh, patiently practicing learning to separate the two, <laughs> and developing that kind of sensitivity, as I go deeper into practice, I find I actually can't separate them. If I look carefully, I actually cannot find where the Vedana ends and my reaction to it begins, where the push-pull ends and the Vedana begins. They're interpenetrating, mutually dependent and inseparable. Vedana is unfindable. My reaction is unfindable. All things are unfindable. All things are inseparable. So unfindability and inseparability also aspects of of the word emptiness. Can't find anything at all, anything at all in the universe, outer or inner, so-called outer, so-called inner, that is really findable, really separate, really has any ground. Another aspect of the meaning, another uh, aspect of the meaning of the word emptiness is in relation to duality and and sort of relativism. So we talk about pleasant and unpleasant, pain and pleasure. They are not, uh, they are a, a pair in the same way that say left and right are a pair, in the same way up and down are a pair, in the same way that hot and cold or right and wrong or good and bad are a pair. They they exist together and independence in dependence on each other. So left only has a meaning in relation to right. Up only has a meaning in relation to down. 
pain only has a meaning in relation to pleasure, good only in relation to bad. But somehow, and this this is very deep in in uh, in the. Uh, in, in the nature of, of what the Buddha calls ignorance itself, in the nature of what is the fundamental delusion of, of uh, consciousness, is believing that things that really exist in dependence of each other, as, as a, uh, exist by themselves, that they really have a real meaning. And, and it seems that way, of course it seems that way. I'm sitting here and something's painful, of course it of course it has a reality. Of course it has an independent reality. If we can begin actually just to start questioning or admitting some doubt into the, the, the independent reality of something that seems so obvious as pain and pleasure, if you can just admit that they might be relative in the same way that left and right might be, It may be that through that, maybe what's only a sliver of doubt, through that we actually begin investing pain and pleasure with less significance and with less meaning because we're seeing their relativity. We believe in them less as real things. I believe in pain and pleasure less as a real thing. I'm investing in it less what happens? I actually notice them less. It's the... When I believe in them to be real, and uh, I invest in them because of that belief, so that investment is, is part of the perceptual process. It's part of perception, and, and the perception actually brings out pain and pleasure. They actually stand out really markedly to the consciousness. This is what we're noticing in life, pain and pleasure. It becomes uh, something. We're sitting in meditation, noticing pain and pleasure. They become very clear, very marked. If one co- consciously brings into mind the doubt that they have a real independent existence, a real inherent existence, what happens? Something very odd starts to happening. happen. They actually begin... To, to fade from consciousness, to fade from perception, because perception is not bringing them out. It's not bringing them out. It's not drawing out that duality of pain and pleasure, of pleasant and unpleasant. So this also is really strange. If I see this, if I feel this happening, what I see what I understand is I need to conceive, I need to have the conception of pleasant and unpleasant in order for them to appear. See, usually we tend to think our conceptions, we we conceive of how things are in the world, but the, the insight here is we're actually seeing, what's actually appearing is dependent on, on the conceiving. If I don't conceive of pleasure and, and, and pain, they actually don't appear so strongly. We can see this to different degrees, you know. It's not necessarily a black or white thing. So when I conceive of them, they're brought out in appearance by craving and aversion. What does this imply? It means... Or the question, is there a world, inner or outer, is there a world, is there the appearance of things apart from my conceiving, apart from conception? This is completely counterintuitive, completely and utterly counterintuitive. Of course we believe in the world independent of my conception. As, as pra- when it's possible, practice can actually begin to turn that most basic assumption about the nature of reality, completely turn it on its head. Where is the world without my conception, without my conceiving? It, it's empty. It's empty. 
So when we typically we give instructions and uh, in a way there's two ways of working just finally two ways of working one is to hear the instructions basically moving through uh, just kind of moving towards basically be aware of everything so one can be sitting being with the breath and just the practice is open to whatever comes up whatever seems prominent and what some people call choiceless awareness and that's one way of working and just then including the Vedna in that and that's a possibility. The way that the Buddha more often taught is he, he would say, develop some calmness. Develop some calmness to some degree. And then he says, take up your theme. Take up your theme. And so the theme being either the body or, uh, or the Vedana or whatever. And actually see, let me turn to this now and deliberately keep my attention there and explore it and see what I can understand about that. There's just two ways of working, both both valuable. So, like I said, uh, with the instructions generally, uh, enormous amount of information. Just take what's what's useful. You know, take what seems like ah, oh, that's a piece that uh, that spoke to me, or that seems relevant to my practice right now, and the rest uh, can leave for another time. So not to feel uh, confused in one's practice. Just take what, what feels helpful. Should we just sit together for a minute or two? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.